Welcome to the Jazz Shapers podcast from Mishkondorea. What you're about to hear was originally broadcast on Jazz FM. However, the music has been cut due to rights issues. This is Jazz Shapers with Elliot Moss on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. Listening colour. Welcome to the brand new series of Jazz Shapers with me, Elliot Moss, bringing the shapers of the business world together with the musicians shaping jazz, soul and blues. My guest today, kicking off the season with a bang, is James Brown, journalist and founder of Loaded, the men's lifestyle magazine and author, most recently, of his autobiography, Animal House. Growing up in Leeds with a passion for football and fanzines, James had, as he says, a single-minded focus on writing for music mags, as I felt it was the only thing I could do. With success from his own fanzine, James was invited to write for Sounds magazine and then the NME, becoming features editor of the NME at age just 22. In 1994, he launched Loaded, the award-winning hedonistic genre and culture-defining magazine and a big part of my 20s that captured the optimistic energy of the 90s and became the market leader in the men's sector. But privately, James was suffering. The impact of his mother's tragic death and of James's increasing drug and alcohol use peaked while he was editor at GQ magazine. James found support, rehab, and of course, new creative endeavours. And we're going to be talking to him about all of this and the impact on him of writing his very honest biography. I know it's a bit weird, James, but you might be a hero to a lot of people of my age. Because in the 90s, life was good, but stuff around journalistically was pretty dull, pretty middle of the road and conventional, unsurprising. And then this thing comes along called Loaded. Mm. And for those of you that haven't experienced it, weren't around when it happened, go look it up, see what you can find online. You didn't start at Loaded, you started much younger. And the thing I want to talk to you about first is what you said about I could only write. That was the thing I had to do. Talk to me about how you discovered that you could write. I mean, it was it was really was like a rock and a hard place. You know, I was, I was leaving school in 1983, 84. There was mass unemployment in Leeds, in the country. I genuinely didn't know anyone with a job. I know that sounds strange, but my friends were either going to FE college or trying to get into university. But at that point, it wasn't also like today where nearly all kids seem to go to university. I had a mate who worked in a greengrocer's, his dad's greengrocer's, and I had another guy who knew he was going to be a doctor and was kind of temping before he went off to Oxford. And all, all I was really into was music. And I absolutely loved going to live gigs i listened to radio one from you know eight till 12 most nights and i discovered the nme and sounds and then when smash hits started it was like a kind of a a glossy smaller version of the nme and it it was actually created by the same people who'd been editing the nme around that time i kind of just thought well these people just talk and write about music in quite an irreverent way and the other thing that I realised when I was writing my book, what attracted me to the enemy was the tone of voice in there was the tone of voice I was kept being told to shut up at school. Well, it was kind of loud, big-headed, irreverent, opinionated, knowledgeable about music. And I used to love all of the inter-writer chat, the funny little lines under the headlines, what I now know as called blurbs or stand-firsts, the cover lines, and... It just seemed like a world that was very similar to what, how I was as a person. But the rest of the world was saying, you can't do anything. You can't, there isn't going to be a job when you leave school. 
when I did the careers meeting at the end of the fifth form, when I told them I wanted to be a music writer, they said, have you thought about printing? So the expectations, I mean, I was a bright kid. I didn't concentrate very much and I didn't work that hard. But, uh, and, and so uh, when I discovered fanzines, self-made little kind of music magazines, I started my own and I realised I was quite good at promoting it and selling it. And, and, and I originally started with a couple of friends and then after about three or four issues, I was doing it myself. And it just kind of opened the world. You know, John Peel mentioned it. The enemy reviewed it, and then they came and interviewed me. So at that point, I realised that actually putting my opinions down and what I thought about about music and, and, and telling people about new bands that I'd found was potentially the only thing anybody was going to pay me to do. And even when I was playing football for the first 11, when I went into the sixth form, I was playing football for the first 11, I can remember running out one day for... Uh, county-wide match and the PE teacher came out he's called Mr McCready he's a groundsman at a cricket club in Huddersfield now he said Brown you've got a job interview in London I went yeah and he went who the hell is going to employ you (laughs) and 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 so that really was he understood the same kind of how small the possibility of me getting employed was as 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 I did and that that was for sounds I'd, I'd seen an advert in sounds and I went and sort of sent them some pages from my fanzine and I and I went there and did the interview. But I knew, I mean, I was 16. I was like, I don't think at that point I'd ever eaten anything other than fish fingers, chips, bread and peas. I mean, I didn't know how to do anything an adult would be required to do. So I knew I was too young then. But a couple of years later, kind of they came back to me and said, do you want to do some writing for us? And and that was, that was the start of it. But I, the guy that became the doctor, Jonathan Varker, he got in touch with me a couple of years ago. Went, oh, last year when my book came out. And uh, we were talking about what life was like back then. And he said, I just used to envy your focus. You just knew in your drive, you knew what you wanted to do. And I think whenever people have asked me, they don't ask me so much anymore, but in the days of Loaded and GQ and so on, he would say, what can we tell young people to do? And it was just, if you know something that you're passionate about, and you believe that's what you want to do, just absolutely stick with it. That was the difference between me and my friends. I just knew what I wanted to do. I wanted to have my name in the anime. Did you read a lot? I mean, I know you, you obviously you love music, and then you started writing about music, and you, you discovered that you could write about music. But was there other stuff that went into James Brown's head? Because the world you described of Leeds at that point and of the UK at that mm. point, and it's quite a tight world of... There's no opportunity. There's nothing going on. Where was that drive to... Well, my dad gave me one of Tom Wolfe's books, maybe the Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test, and that was just like an explosion of colour in my mind. And then Hell's Angels by Hunter Thompson, and what was known as the New Journalists, mm. starting to read books by George Plimpton, Wolfe, Hunter Thompson... I just thought, wow, this is amazing. I'd never read anything like that. You know, the only how old were you when you started reading that I was kind about of stuff? Sixteen or seventeen, and yeah. um, before that, you know, I'd read George Orwell, and you know, as part of my English O level course, literature O level course. But those books were just amazing. You know, when you you talk about a generation of musicians being excited by the emergence of the Sex Pistols or the Clash, and the guys who are a little bit older than me, that that was my equivalent in in kind of terms of writing reading Mm -hmm. those guys and thinking what i realized was in in the uh, great shark hunt which is a compilation of hunter thompson's sort of political and travel writing 
basically I realised he was really young when he was the first pieces that are in those books. He was really young and that kind of gave me a little bit of inspiration as well. But, you know, I wasn't in the sort of uh, financial situation to be able to go off and, uh, and and hang around in Central America like he'd been doing. But, um, you know, I was spending a lot of time travelling the country in the back of vans with bands mm-hmm. and meeting people. There was a genuine underground then in mid-80s of fanzine editors and crashing on floors and sofas and seeing gigs. And it was that... I had to leave Leeds to find that kind of community of like-minded music obsessives. And, uh, and were you happy to leave? Because thinking and reading about you, I was like, I kept going back to one of my favourite films, which is Cinema Paradiso. And there's this bit in there where the the old man says to the young guy, don't come back. Yeah, you know, I watched that this weekend, funnily enough. Yeah, I showed my girlfriend. Do you, know, do you remember the bit where he just yeah, says, totally. do not I, come back, But he's man. so strict. I mean, at yeah. the start of that film, he's not been back for 30 years. That's right. So I was watching that and thinking how, you know, Toto is this, this kid who wants to do... So it was all, But the world gets bigger that, like, yeah, that way. Yeah, it was seeing similarities. I mean, I think the main thing was I would move for music, employment and sex. You know, being honest, I got a, I got a girlfriend in Manchester and Manchester had a bigger music scene, you know, whereas Leeds would have... Pretty good independent bands like the Three Johns and the Age of Chance and the Sisters of Mercy, the Wedding Present. Manchester had New Order, The Fall, Simply Red were just emerging, not really my sort of music, but there seemed to be a higher level uh, and certainly just a lot more people for me to write about and a girlfriend there. So I'd split on my girlfriend in Leeds. So that, so that was why I went there. And then from there, you know, I lived in Manchester for about a year and a half and there was a lot to write about. And then I just went to London from there. But I was, by the time I was 18 or not, I mean, I was skipping school to mm. go to London. remember a mate and I hitchhiking down, I'm in the fifth form or the sixth form, to go and watch the Higsons and serious drinking in Hammersmith at the Hammersmith Palais. And I was thinking, that was when, when my own son was sort of 15, 16, if he'd called me and said, I'm in Leeds, you know, I live in London now, I'd be thinking, what? So it's sort of like... But, but that's what I want to talk to you about, education for a minute, because you yeah. are a, you know, your bank of work, as it were, is is famous. You know, you, you love what you do mm. and people know what your passion is. The traditional education system, and I meet lots of people who have broken the rules, I'm not saying it's broken, but it doesn't always produce unusual new thinking. So for you, if you'd have stayed in the track that your friend the doctor did and gone off and done something professional... What would you have done with all that? Well, I wouldn't have done. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't. there's no way I would have finished my A-levels. I was already distracted. I was already going off and, you know, I'd wake up on a school morning in Bradford or Hull or Sheffield because I'd gone to see a band and sell my little fanzine. So it's not something I've ever thought about. Happen. It's more the other way of what would I... I don't know what I'd have done. You know, sometimes I see the guys in the park on the little buggies and I think I wouldn't mind if doing that. You know, the, gar- the gardeners and the park keepers. But I think that was why I was so focused on what I wanted to do. There just didn't seem to be a great deal of options. And um, there's no way I was following Varker to Oxford or wherever he went. Luckily for us, he didn't. It's James Brown, who's my business shaper. He's uh, the man behind Loaded and a bunch of other stuff too. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mish Condorea. It's business. 
but it's personal. You can enjoy all our former business shapers on the Jazz Shapers podcast, and you can hear this very program again if you pop Jazz Shapers into your podcast platform of choice. My guest today, if you haven't been with me, and naughty you if you haven't been, is James Brown, journalist, founder of Loaded, the men's lifestyle magazine, and author of two books, his memoir on five-a-side football, and most recently, his autobiography, Animal House. The bit I want to get to, obviously, Loaded happens. It's around 96, I think. 94, oh, sorry. 1994. 30 years ago. 30 years ago. I'm, I, I had just started work. I was living with one of my colleagues from work, uh, another young man, and we were there, and I can see it now. It's the bunch of Loaded strewn across the little coffee table, which wasn't a coffee table. It was just a small table that the, yeah. the landlord had given a, us. An upturned beer crate. Whatever it was. And it was like you, you described... One of the books that you'd read early on, um, I think it was the Tom Wolfe book, as kind of this explosion. Yeah. It was an explosion. It was an explosion of of visual stuff. It was an explosion of irreverence. It was kind of capturing a naughtiness, a hedonism that that, as I felt then, I wasn't experiencing. I was a pretty straight bloke working in advertising. Mm. I mean, read, Relatively straight, it's all relative, right? But compared to you, you're in the epicenter of this hedonistic world, living the life and writing. Well, that's how it seemed. All Without now, I know more. All we but, did uh, was put all the things the small team and I that I put together. We put all the things we loved in the magazine, and I think that was the key to it. That we took so many different subjects and put them together. So I was actually looking. There's going to be a documentary this year about Loaded on a really prestigious slot, and um, we were looking. I was with the people making. I was looking at the first issue this week, and there was just so much in it. I think what it did was it brought together a love of cult films new emerging sports stars, American comedy, football, and just, as you said, a kind of a sense of hedonism. In the early 90s, there had been a creative explosion in Britain. Ecstasy had changed the kind of the general atmosphere of the high street of nightclubs. Football violence kind of disappeared and was kind of replaced by this glossy presentation on, on, on Sky, so it became a much more palatable and accessible sport for, for people wanting to watch it. There'd been a brilliant emergence of, of, of musical talent in the late 80s and through to the, the early 90s in the UK. So whether it was club music or the comedy scene that was fantastic or the art scene, there, there was genuinely a kind of... it was. I think it was a kickback against the hardship of the early 90s. You know, if, mm. if you think about 1984, the, the dominant image was of a mounted policeman crashing a baton down on a woman trying to save her husband's job. And then you go forward four years and the dominant image was a smiley badge, you know, and then you come forward another couple of years and he's Gazza on top of that bus with his fake <laughs> breasts. And um, so, so the UK got a lot more fun at the end of the 80s and the start of the 90s. So there was nothing that I could pick up and read about all of this stuff. So people that I championed at NME, like the Charlatans or the Happy Mondays or the KLF, or people like comedians like Jack D and Vic and Bob, who had written the first pieces on. These guys would never be in any of the why? kind of fashion I mean, magazines. But, but why not? I mean, all that it, stuff. Because what, what you're describing, I, I'll, I'll ask. It's just ordinary life. It, yeah. Well, you're describing your life. You're describing yeah, was, your consumption in the same way, though, that when you when you wrote the fanzine, it was your life. Well, you this were, comes out of the magazine industry. There was a perception that men wouldn't read magazines en masse in the same way. Women had. So if you go back to the 60s, Michael Heseltine had a, had a magazine called Man About Town and then there were the American magazines GQ and Esquire mm. 
but they were very much focused about the idea, you know, the American idea that, you know, man, man at his best, you know, and... and it's a, uh, Gillette, a Gillette view of the world. Yeah, it was, and it was yeah. kind of like about suits and expensive restaurants and how to play, how to play bridge and, you know, reviewing port and... It was just nothing. <laughs> it was a world away from, you know, you could pick up a, a GQ in the early 90s and actually Heseltine would be on the cover. Or you pick up Arena and they'll have six pages feature on TFAL. They were very much about design and about being cool. And actually, the emergence of the Manchester music scene, Gaza being the best footballer in the early 90s, best British footballer, and then kind of like the drug explosion, you know, you referred to it as a sort of hedonistic lifestyle. Mm. None of those things was... Good euphemism, wasn't it? Yeah, but it? none of those things were studied. No. They weren't about elitism and they weren't about cool. They were accessible, they were fun. If you read the magazines like Blitz and the Face that came before Loaded, a lot of the content was about a fairly small clique of people based in, in Soho, London, you know, around the Wag Club and the Bar Italia and, you know, drinking Perrier. And they weren't about, you know, kind of, let's say, like a, a gang of weed-smoking surfers down in... In Newquay, or, or it wouldn't be about a load of guys, you know, running clubs in Nottingham or Manchester, or like something like Back to Basics in Leeds. You mentioned at the top of the interview, there was just there was nothing there, so it was like virgin territory. And how Loaded had come about was, I'd been asked to go back and and as being the editor of the Enemy and drawing those conversations. They'd said, "Have you ever thought about doing your own magazine?" And I said, "Yes." Arena, edited by Hunter Thompson, with male cover stars who were either knackered and past it with great stories to tell. So people like Hurricane Higgins, Oliver Reed, Jimmy White, Petro Tall, people like that, or hot and up and coming and, and young and dangerous. So, you know, a lot of the people that we had in Loaded had never been on magazine covers. So Prince Nassim Hamid, for instance, world champion boxer, amazing character, colourful, flamboyant. You wouldn't see him on the front of a of a kind of a men's magazine. And, and I felt that men would read magazines because, you know, I read my girlfriend's women's mag, especially those multiple-choice, are you a good lover questionnaire, <laughs> which, as I'm sure anyone who was of that age would remember, you only had to look at the back and turn the page upside down to get the correct answers that they wanted to read so you could fill them all in. And, and, and I think one of the most pertinent things said about Loaded was it, I think it was a woman who started Cosmopolitan as it seemed to be doing for men what she'd done for women in the, in the early 70s because before Cosmo, apart from maybe Bieber, there were no magazines for women that reflected what their lives were really like. It was There were magazines for housewives. There weren't magazines for women having careers or fun or, or anything. And that's what Loaded was, and we're going to come back to yeah. that because what, what lives were really like is, I think, the key to the significant commercial success which happened. I think it was... Uh, pretty much profitable after about three editions yeah. is what I read amazing stuff behind the story and there are millions of stories James and and you know that's it's going to be hard to cover them all before 10 o'clock but behind the story you're running a thing called a magazine you have journalists you have budgets you have an office mm. you have deadlines you have photographers you have a whole commercial set of stuff to do mm. and at the same time according to you you may have well been, you know, inebriated. You may have well been out late at night. There's a whole bunch of serious stuff going on and you're f literally flying at stuff by your own, you know, your, not just your own admission, you have shared that. How, looking back, do you think you managed to hold it together for as long as you did? Well, initially, the excitement of having this opportunity 
um, not only to create the magazine, but to build a team. So being able to bring in people I even knew who were mates or people who was, his work had admired. Having a kind of a vision that it shouldn't be the same old names who'd been in publishing for years, wanting to find new talent, and just having this open space meant it was totally and utterly all-consuming. It was a brilliant magazine to work on. Mm. But we made it look very much like it was like a loud, wild party, but we worked incredibly hard. The team was only a very small team. The company didn't think... They'd only budgeted for, for three issues. So we were all on sort of 12-week contracts. And my feeling was it would either be a, a pretty good success, we'd sell like 100,000 copies, or we'd sell like 10,000. I didn't think it would get to 600,000 in four years and, and create a template for a market that rolled out around the world. But yeah, I mean, pretty much I went from being a guy who was riding around the development office on a bike with a golf club in one hand <laughs> and a big pure grass spliff in the other to <laughs> being the, the head of the creative end of a monthly million pound business yeah. and the financial target was we were supposed to make our first pound of profit after 36 issues and we we made it after 12 weeks after three issues and the thing that told us that this was going to be a hit was about three weeks into the second issue the postboy arrived with three enormous fabric sacks you know like gray you know you know what post you know office post bags used to be like and he went Phew. so we've been looking for you everywhere I said, what's that? And he said, that's your post. <laughs> and he said, I've got another two bags downstairs. Because we, so, we were such a small part of IPC's mm. outlook yeah. that, that we didn't actually have a... We weren't on the, the office plan of the building. And they didn't... I mean, the publisher, Andy McDuff, and I should say, you know, my idea, the team I put together was fully supported by a big company. That made a big difference. IPC, who'd, who'd, which I'd worked for, for, for NME. Andy had a... Andy was the publisher, and he had a framed certificate from other publishers at the company awarding him an award for the title most likely to lose him his job. And there were people queuing up in the publishing world from other titles in newspapers, from Evening Standard running a full page. People just queuing up saying this will be a failure. But from And just, I'm conscious of time, but I really want to ask you this, outside of all that, so I'm looking in and I'm C-loaded, hundreds of thousands of other people. Yeah. But for you personally, you know, there's a there's a lot going on. You're you're drinking heavily, you're, you know, do, doing all sorts of stuff. Yeah. You've talked about that. You've talked about what was going on for you personally. Right now though, people talk about mental health, they talk about addiction. It's yeah, it all difficult. That, totally. I mean, how did you personally get through that, James? Well, nobody really knew anything about what had happened. My mum had like taken her own life two years before Loaded came out. So six months before I was asked if I wanted to do my own magazine and there was nothing. It wasn't like there were adverts everywhere for calm like there are now. It's not like people will make documentaries like Professor Green did mm. or that there are books or, or podcasts about things like this or magazines. So I just medicated myself with grass and drink. And so when the magazine came along, the opportunity to do it, that consumed me. And, and I think, you know, the, the legendary tales of which my book is full of and which we eventually started writing about in a magazine of excessive consumption, that, that kind of came more a few months into doing it because, as I said, we didn't really know when we started. We were producing the first issue 30 years ago today and we would have been in on Saturdays. 
So we were had a very small team. We didn't have the logo until like weeks before. I've still got like development, you know, work and and dummies and promotional postcards with a, with a, an earlier logo on, and it was very much just you know a spur of the moment. Let's put all everything in together. But because I'd worked on the NME, which was a brilliant title and was a weekly. The idea of having four weeks to put an issue together didn't seem a problem. And so I ran and loaded, you know, in those first three years where I was there, like a newspaper or like a weekly, you know, we would we ran the first piece about OJ. Then the Guardian had a piece after the murder on the Monday and then on the Friday, I'd already had a request from an American writer to run a piece. And nobody knew OJ Simpson was in the UK, apart from as a, a supporting actor in Naked Gun. You know, his story of being an American football great, we, there was, you know, this was before Channel 4 mm-hmm. used to show American football, I think. And um, so, you know, the, the ability to be able to pull things out and drop other things in meant that I was perfectly capable at that point of having a fairly hedonistic lifestyle. But the, my, my... And, manage, and managing to put the magazine to bed. And I'm just wanna, yeah. we're going to come back. We're going to yeah. come back for our final chat with you. Okay. It's James Brown. And we've also got some Little Richard. That's all coming up in just a moment. Don't go anywhere. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. James Brown is my business shaper just for a few more precious minutes. So your own health then, you talk about it in the book a lot. You talk about addiction. You've been 26 years clean. Is that the phrase that you use? You yeah, say clean and sober. Clean and sober, um, which is extraordinary. It is. And and we talk, people talk a lot, and you mentioned now, people talk a lot about addiction and yeah. trauma that affects addiction. You've mentioned your mum's, mm. obviously, yeah. ill health and then her, her early death. What do you say now to people that are struggling when you meet them? Well, I talk to a lot of people about it. And, I, you know, one of the reasons that I'm kind of... The main reason I wrote about it in the book and why I'm quite happy I've done a couple of interviews about it over the years is that at Loaded we flew the flag for alcohol and cocaine consumption and, and you know having got to the point where I was a fully functioning alcoholic at, at GQ and then them paying for me to go through rehab I was incredibly appreciative of that and a lady called Susanna and Moore was the HR lady and Jonathan Newhouse who ran Condé Nast they, they you know sanctioned me getting you know paid for support and uh, so not everybody has that so I go out of my way to just to talk to people, uh, you know, point them in the direction of uh, the rehab counsellor I used, or just sit down, you know, I'm always quite happy to just go and have a cup of tea and listen to where people are and just, I, I'm really about, you know, if my life can be about attraction rather than promotion, the idea that you can have a, a more constructive life, and you can have a fun and interesting life, that's what I thought. I thought if I stopped drinking, my life would be boring, but it was far from it. But And also the other thing I, I thought, again, you're... you're incredibly honest you talked about the cockiness the james brown like you walk in the room you got the swagger and it's in your face it's the don revy reference which yeah. is you know the best form of defense is, is is attack yeah and that's what you did and you know i'm sure we've all done that i mean but you were probably the personification of that now the person i'm meeting in front of me is not that at, <laughs> a, at all and i don't mean that that's that's just an observation never i'm I'm 58, I've got kids, <laughs> uh, I don't take drugs or drink anymore, and I don't have, like, uh, super high-impact, high-demand jobs, so life's a lot more relaxed now, and I think... Do you like that, though? Is this the good chapter in the James Brown the, life? I missed some of the action and excitement. It's a pity the magazine industry doesn't really 
isn't in the same place as it was. You know, I really think that I was in the last golden era of print well, publishing. I, do, I mean, that's sort of the, the, almost my, my final shot. The, the industry before 1994 was not the industry it was after that. There was a looking glass moment and it was, I think it was loaded. Yeah, I mean, I did 36 issues. 30 of them had men on the cover. And that, I mean, that's something that has been a challenge. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to write the book and say in the book that the way those mass market men's magazines went, where every cover, whether it was a GQ or a, a Vina or a Squire or a Nuts, a Zoo, FHM, Maxim, those type of magazines, they all just had the same cover. They would have a girl in a bikini, mm. or maybe not even a bikini top. And, and, you know, I've spent a lot of time having to answer for that. And it's like being blamed for the people that buy your house off you. You know, it's kind of, you know, the reality of it is, you know, I was putting uh, guys with great stories, you know, Suggs from Madness, uh, Will Carling, Vic and Bob, Irving Welsh interviewing Noah Gallagher. And there were so many people at that time and people who were still household names now, you know, uh, Frank Skinner was one of my favourite covers. Uh, Gary Oldman is, is obviously, uh, that was the first cover. He's, he's, he's thriving in, in Slow Horses and before that Batman. And so a lot of my heroes and the people that I loved writing about and then the team I had a brilliant team at Lower Did that, that, that they loved writing about weren't getting coverage then and they, mm. and they do now so you know if you think about Sean Ryder and Bez they're like mainstream totally. TV household names and so uh, let me ask yeah. you because we're going to wrap just before I ask okay. your, your song choice so it's been it's been honestly a treat for me more more than I've shown James because you know okay. we just keep things under, under, under control over here The Focus that yep. your life started with James Brown Focus on writing yes and that took you through took you on an incredible journey. What's the focus now? What are you looking to, if there's anything to fix or address? Where does James Brown spend got, his time? I've got an idea for a new business and it's taken me quite a while to work out. I'm, I, I mean, I'd love to edit a magazine again, but it's not, there just isn't the audience there to have the sort of size of numbers that I'd like to deal with. But I've got an idea. Well, there's going to be some screen action about Loaded, about my book, about Animal House. So that's interesting, having meetings with people who want to make dramas and films and, and, and also, as I mentioned, somebody wants to do, a, you know, kind of really... And I get what, all that, what, but there's is there a bigger focus that says, when I was a kid, I wanted to write? And I've kind of looked back now and wow, uh, and now in the next 10, 15, 20 I kinda, years... I don't know. I mean, I like being a dad, you know. I kind of... <laughs> I'm second time around, really, on that, and that's probably the most important thing to me, to, you know, sort of improve as a dad for my younger son, but also have a good relationship with my old, my 22-year-old son. Um, I'd like to keep playing football. I mean, it's kind of weird when you... I feel a little bit like my career is like a footballer's. You can... You can... You kind of get to your late 30s and then the magazine's ended. So, um, you know, I'm a big fan of things like that. You know, there's, I think we've got some brilliant uh, media institutions in Britain. I read The Times every day, The Sunday Times... So, you know, I still consume it all, but I yeah. think I'm going to create something that will apply to my generation in the same way that Loaded did, but it won't be purely just a print project, but there'll be, there'll be something like that in there. James Brown's going to keep creating, that's good news. It's been really great talking to you. Um, thank you. Just Thanks. before I let you disappear into the sunset, what's your song choice and why have you chosen it? Uh, move On Up. Curtis Mayfield. Curtis Mayfield. It's one of the few songs that, it's impossible to hear and not just feel upbeat and, and, and excited by. That was Curtis Mayfield, of course, with Move On Up, the song choice of my business shaper today, James Brown. He talked about the importance of doing something you're passionate about. He was utterly passionate about writing and about music, and guess what? That's what he did. 
He talked about the importance of focus and he was focused from a very young age on doing the thing that he loved and making that the foundation of the rest of his life. And finally, he created something which broke all the rules of the men's sector. He wrote about what was actually happening in people's lives. Fantastic stuff. That's it from me and Jazz Shapers. Have a lovely weekend. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. We hope you enjoy that edition of Jazz Shapers. You'll find hundreds more guests available for you to listen to in our archive. To find out more, just search Jazz Shapers in iTunes or your favourite podcast platform or head over to mishkon.com forward slash jazz shapers.